You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Here for the karaoke, you're in the right room. Um, Before we begin, I have a statement to read here. You'll find this humorous and yet serious all at the same time. This panel concerns legal subjects, but nothing said here today should be taken as legal advice. You should not take any answer from the panelists as an agreement to be your lawyer. (laughs) Similarly, you should not assume that anything stated by one of the panelists is the official position of any of their clients. And if we understand that, um, no, no questions yet. We had to do introductions, introductions. And actually, I was going to research all the panelists and tell you great things about them. And I was going to tell you how many works Jay Lake has published, except for I realized in the time I've been talking, I think he probably published two more things. So instead, I'll let everybody introduce themselves, starting on the far end, Mr. Davis. Oh, well. My name is Russell Davis. I'm the current president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. I'm sorry. Can everybody hear me okay? No. My name is Russell Davis. <laughs> I'm not. I'm the current president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Uh, those of you who are members know that we're fairly heavily involved in the current uh, situation between the Authors Guild and and the. American Association of Publishers and Google Books. And uh, certainly I'm happy to talk about not only what our position is as an organization, but what our council has told us about the Google Books settlement. Hi, my name is Karen Wester Newton. I'm a writer. Um, Until my agent sells the book, I have only an academic interest in the copyright law. But um, I do work for a legal publisher and the publishing systems uh, technology group, so I am interested in the technical side of this issue, particularly where it pertains to e-books, because I have a strong interest in uh, e-books and e-readers, and I, I see that as the future of reading in many ways. So I'm very interested to see how this will play out in, in that regard. I'm Charlie Pettit. Uh, I'm an attorney. I am not Sefwa's attorney. I have provided. No, you're not. That's right. <laughs> Don't need or want the job either. Uh, I have some, made some fairly public and fairly disparaging statements about the entire litigation regarding the Google Book search. Copyright aspects and the settlement. And uh, that's largely because, unlike most lawyers who do copyright work, I work essentially only for the copyright creators. I don't work for publishers, I don't work for Hollywood. So my interests are perhaps a little bit more towards the author's side than many others who comment on the issue. My name is Jay, and I'm a writer. Hi, Jay. It's, 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 it's been three days since I've last written. Um, Good boy, Jay. It's been a busy week. <laughs> um, as a writer, I hold active copyrights on 10 novels and about 250 short stories. Um, that have been in print within the last 10 years, many of them still in print. Um, When I first paid attention to the Google Books settlement uh, was when my agent sent me a letter with official recommendation from the agency, which I read, and I called her up and I said, am I essentially agreeing to be ripped off here? And she got very embarrassed and said, well, I'm not supposed to tell you that, but yes. (laughs) And uh, have been rather vocal in my opinions about the Google Books settlement and, and Google's behavior in this. Uh, ever since then, and in fact, I believe I'm the reason this panel is here tonight.
I'm Christopher Kastensmith. Uh, I've worked for over a decade in the entertainment industry. Uh, I've, licen I've been, worked as both a licensor and licensee of intellectual property. Um, I've uh, worked with all kinds of different products, and even once I negotiated a settlement of intellectual property rights, although uh, magnitudes smaller than the uh, $125 million we're talking about with this, but you know I've been on uh, different sides of this issue, and so hopefully I have something decent to add or at least make a few good quips by the end. And as your moderator, I'm Dan Gamber. I am one of the principals in Meadowhawk Press uh, Publishing, and we're a small fish in this big pond and very interested in the implications and the outcome of what happens with all this. Um, with that, I, I wanted to actually start with a statement that came out of the Department of Justice, their um, report on this, and they said that this is one of the most far-reaching class action settlements in which the U.S. is aware. Uh, the magnitude and the scope of how far this reaches probably not, touch, not only touches everybody in this room, but um, everybody in the industry. So um, with that, uh, one of the first things I wanted to talk about was, um, did anybody see the uh, New York Times uh, article, when was that, just a week or two ago? That basically they're saying that um, the, uh, the latest delay is actually, they're even saying indefinite now in the time frame. They're not sure that they're going to get a response back within the time. Bullshit. <laughs> let, let me take about 30 seconds and explain procedurally. This has nothing to do with the substance, but procedurally what's happening right now. On October 7th, there was a status conference in front of Judge Chin who is hearing the case in New York. At that time, the parties, who are technically the Authors Guild and Google and a set of publishers, said that they're going to come back with a modified settlement on or about the 9th of November, and they're going to propose a short two-month additional comment and opt-out period at that point. Since that time, uh, a rather persuasive letter has been filed on behalf of the Electronic Freedom Foundation, 17 law professors, and a large number of other objectors saying, uh, Judge Chin, we're going to need more than two months, especially over the holidays. That's where we are right now. Until the 9th of November, anything you hear is probably just a rumor. Once the 9th of November is here, there will be another 346-plus page document to digest. I think it's, I mean, maybe before we delve off into, into speculation about this, it's important to understand there's a sense of urgency that comes with any class action suit. And the, the problem is, is that that urgency is maybe a little misplaced, particularly in a class action matter so complex as this. Certainly, you know, as the sitting president of CIFWA, we, you know, we had an interesting thing where everybody said, what are you doing? Why aren't you acting fast? Well, we were acting within the confines of what the court told us we could do and what our counsel advised us. The fact is, is that this matter between the Authors Guild, uh, who's not, in my opinion, a great class representative, uh, nor the, the publishers who, as authors, how many authors do we have here? A bunch? When was the last time you agreed with your publisher about the fucking you were going to get? How they all got in bed together and decided what was best for us, <laughs> um, that's not going to be settled anytime soon. And so while papers like the Times and so on, they want to report on what the DOJ says and they want to talk about the urgency of this matter, what I want to tell you as authors is, take a deep breath, okay? The world will not come to an end on November 7th? 9th. 9th, pardon me. November, it will not come to an end on November 9th. It will come to an end in 2012 when the Mayans said it would. 
Is that before or after my book's drop date? Uh, I'm sorry, Jay, you're SOL. <laughs> run, Dan. Run, run, run. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, we, we kind of jumped right into the guts of it. Is anyone brave enough to raise their hand to say that you really have no idea what the Google settlement we're talking about is? It just hit me as I'm sitting up here because I, I was aware of it, but I started digging into it over the last couple weeks, and that's what I read on the plane on the way here, and I, I was actually astounded. So let's back up for a minute and talk about what this is. This goes back to uh, Google's book search where they had an initiative where they were going to go out and scan the contents digitally of this massive quantity of books from libraries that libraries are going to give to them. They're going to scan them, and they're going to make them available online for reading. Cool. Now, no, obviously, no. that uh, is... Actually, wasn't it just for searching to start with, right? Uh, there's going to be searching. a limited amount of content, but the entire The book would be there, but you would, the searcher would there. see a snippet. Right. So. I, I think it's... Unless I'm mistaken, when I came in tonight, I saw Ashley Grayson sitting right back there. Ashley, are you here? He'll, I'll probably screw this up, and if I do, Ashley, you can call me on it, okay? Um, the notion behind the original lawsuit, Charlie, please call me on this if I screw it up, or Jay, or anybody, if I, if I understand correctly. Google said, wouldn't it be cool if the library at Alexandretta was never destroyed and we could have all of this stuff available for everyone? And as writers and researchers and, and so on, there's a part of us that goes, yeah, that's a fantastic idea. What happened was that they fundamentally failed to understand how orphan copyright works, which is to say that this lady right here in the front row write a book, writes a book or a story, vanishes off the face of the earth, and we can't find her to get her permission while copyright is still in force. Um, when they went about the scanning or digitizing of all of these works, orphan works, works they didn't have permissions of, uh, virtually any library they could get their hands on, the Authors Guild and the American Association of Publishers, did I get that right, Charlie? Uh, several members of the AAP. Thank you. Filed suit for copyright infringement. Now. This is where it begins to get a little complicated because you see the settlement as it's been proposed does not address the original charge of copyright infringement. What it does is it tries to address, help me Charlie, it tries to address ways in which they won't be infringing copyright in the future. Now, for those of you who don't really understand all this, basically it's this. When you sell a work, you license pieces of that work, right? If you sell a short story to FNSF or Asimov's or you license the first North American serial rights, everybody understands that, right? But what you didn't license was the electronic rights to that story. You still own them. Google, in their infinite wisdom, says, well, it's out there. We should have it. And the part of the settlement that they're basically saying is, we're going to ignore the fact that we took it before you gave your permission. And in order for us to not get in trouble, we're going to say that you have to opt out of our infringement. Can I give a fairly simple metaphor for Please, this? Please, Jay. The
I can get fucked respectfully and still know I'm being screwed. I need to respond to that. I'm afraid that uh, Google has made sufficient public statements to support Russell's inference of intent. You may personally disagree with it. I don't ascribe those to you individually. The company and company officers have made specific statements of their intent. Those statements are in the record. They have been made publicly. Those, and Russell did review them prior to making that analysis. In my judgment, what he said is probably understating what the, the uh, gravity of the intent of the leaders at Google. Folks, this is a complicated, very complicated legal issue. Jay, I'd like to hear your metaphor. The, 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 metaphor, the metaphor has to do with the author. Remember, I'm, I'm, I'm an author here. I'm not an attorney. I don't believe I'm a member of the class, at least not before CIFA got involved. Um, I don't. Uh, yes, you are. Well, <laughs> sort of. Sort of. I'm not a member of the Authors Guild. Um, as far as I know, the Authors Guild doesn't even have represent fiction substantially, don't they? No. It's complicated. Well, it's complicated. Right, right. You're, you're correct, <laughs> and it's even more complicated. I am now jumping my own shark. Um, <laughs> so if you think about a copyright as a piece of real property, they think you, you own a house, right? A copyright is a house. You cannot rent a house without me giving you permission to rent the house. And you cannot set the value of the house for rent without asking me what I want to charge for it. You don't get to send me a contract that says you're going to pay me $10 a month for the house. And, well, by the way, you've already occupied it. And that's kind of too bad for me. And if I fail to respond, the contract is considered to be in force. I mean, I, all of us have signed leases. That's understandable. In effect, from my point of view, that's what they've done to my copyrights. They've said, oh, we've presumptively licensed your copyright, and it's worth this much. And if you don't like that, you can opt out of it. The entire structure of copyright, at least as far back as I understand it, I'm not a legal historian by any stretch of the imagination, is exactly the opposite. It's an opt-in process, not an opt-out process. You can never presumptively take my copyright. You have to ask my permission any more than you can presumptively occupy my house without asking my permission. And what it boils down to is, oh, and by the way, I guess you can sue us, but guess what? We have the highest market cap in the world, and you don't. Fundamentally, absolutely accurate. Yep. Okay. okay I, but, I, I, wait a minute. Wait, wait, let me answer because okay. it was my analogy. Good. Uh, to quote Russell, I don't care if it's fair use. You're creating a presumptive class of licensing to me. Even if I agree that what Google Books is doing is a good idea, and actually, fundamentally, I do. I, do, I agree, disagree with the process. If you create in, and I'm not getting into the difference between case law and right. bench law and, and legislation. I can't. That is not my competency. If you create a precedent, using that term loosely, for a presumptive copyright, what's to stop Hollywood from doing that to one of my novels and then saying, oh, by the way, we think your option's worth 100 bucks, thanks. Because now it's enshrined, just like if houses can now be occupied by anybody with a big enough bankroll who pays a small enough amount, anybody else's house can be occupied. It creates a precedent that is profoundly untenable and sabotages every copyright holder. The problem is, is that, that fair use has never been fully legislated. And the fact of the matter is, is that there are fundamental disagreements at, in the various circuits of the court, as well as at the Supreme Court level, at the United States uh, Copyright Office, about what constitutes fair use. Now, okay. Jane Yolen happens to be a former CIFWA president. Now, those of you who don't know who the hell I am, and no one could blame you, probably know Jane Yolen's name pretty well. Jane doesn't like this particular deal because she thinks that if they take 30 pages of a 35-page story and call it fair use, it's called a fucking. And I won't put words in Jane's mouth because she's far more ladylike than I am, thank God. But the, the reality is, is that fair use has not been legislated. And at least fully, Charlie, am I incorrect about that? It hasn't been fully defined. There is a legislative set, uh, definition of fair use. It, it's a complicated four-factor test. But there are two problems with 
Google's initial claim regarding fair use. And they are both so fundamentally obvious that I find it difficult to believe that responsible people would have been stating that this is fair use. Item one, there are virtually no contested cases that have ever found that copying an entire work constitutes fair use. That yet that is exactly what the point is. By building the search engine, they have to copy the entire work. The second is that those four statutory factors almost always in practice end up bowing to a fifth factor that's not in the statute. And this is the one that irritates me the most. That, fa that factor is administrative convenience. A huge thumb gets put on the scale every time there's a lawsuit involving fair use. The side that has the greater administrative burden, <coughs> excuse me, is presumed to have that's the, where the tie goes to the runner, so to speak. In this particular instance, there are so many administrative burdens on both sides that I don't know how you could make that decision. Isn't this also a case where the technology has gone so much faster than the law? I mean, a lot of these laws were written when these things weren't possible. So the, that's part of the problem. But the issue isn't the technology. The issue is the creation <coughs> of a class of copyright license proactively. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm not arguing with intent because, frankly, I don't care about the intent. I care about the outcome. Well, I think once Google says they're going to sell books, they sort of no. make no, it difficult doesn't. to see it as, as anything less than making money out of it. As an author, I mean, really the bottom line, though, is what you say, Jay, in that, in that I create a, a piece of work, I own the copyright and all the licensing rights thereunto, whatever I sell. You don't get to come to me ex post facto and say, hey, I took this and I owe you five bucks. And you know what the advice from both my agent and my publisher was? Was go ahead and take the settlement and take the money because it's probably a, the, better, the best deal you're gonna get. And I said, so I should agree to be rolled because it's convenient and we'll get money out of it? <laughs> There's that administrative convenience again. Yeah. But it's like fighting a parking ticket, right? It's, at some level. You know? uh, it, it, in many ways, it's even worse than that because at least when you're fighting a parking ticket, you don't have to go hire a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. I, actually, let's let's step back from one minute because we, we kind of got okay. stuck down in legalese, and uh, I want to back up a little bit because it's very complex. What happened once Google did this and the class action lawsuit was filed, they spent the next four years with the two interested parties and Google coming up with this settlement. And the settlement is what was just reviewed by the Department of Justice within the last month or so. And what that settlement, if, if you want to see more information about what that settlement is supposed to do, there's two <coughs> websites you can look at for that. One is books.google.com, where they, in glowing flower terms, tell you about how wonderful this great settlement and the new world of electronic books is going to be for all of you. Uh, they'll tell you about uh, how the book search works, the library project, uh, the partner program, and, oh wait, they're actually going to sell books as well. So once you search and you find something you want, you can actually then buy it. But don't worry, mom, pop, bookstores, they're still going to tell the consumer that you have a copy of the book too around the corner from them. Um, the other one you want to look at about the settlement, and again, this is run on Google's servers, but it's actually the uh, settlement administrator is Russ Consulting, and that is googlebooksettlement.com. And that's where it explains about the, the settlement and Jay's money that he's gonna take and, and run for Mexico and retire on. So, so what happened was this, the proposed settlement was announced on, Charlie? They announced the proposed settlement. Uh, the proposed settlement was, a, was announced just about a year ago. Um, yeah. About a year ago. Now, Putting on my SIFWA hat for a minute, as the president of Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, the first thing we did was we went to our corporate counsel, our, our lawyers, and said, what's right with this and what's wrong with it? And 
there's a couple of problems that, that regardless of what anybody sort of intended or meant, that can't be avoided in the original settlement. And this was, we filed our official objection uh, last month uh, to the settlement. And I don't, because I'm not a lawyer and I don't even get to play one on TV, I'm gonna, I'll probably screw this up a little bit. But one of the fundamental problems was that, that we suggested that the Authors Guild the American the members of the American Association of Publishers who were representing the class were not good class representatives. There were a couple of reasons for that. First and foremost, none of the named plaintiffs in the suit were trade fiction authors. Um, in other words, none of them had ever sold a book that was fiction to somebody you'd recognize. Um, kind of a problem, since there's a lot of fiction in the Google Books database. The second problem was is that because of the nature of orphan copyrights, which we deal with on the science fiction and fantasy side a lot, how could they claim to know what was in the best interests of people who were not there to speak for themselves. And by definition, can't be there and, and to speak for themselves. So I, I mean, if you're a writer and you're sitting out there, imagine <coughs> not only has a company come forward and said, we own your rights or we can take this piece of your rights, but another group said, and we can speak for you. <laughs> and in the meantime, you know, you're in the back room having your espresso going, wait a minute, something's not right here. And so when we began to file, and, and, and I believe most of the objectors, uh, at least within the continental United States, one of the core objections to the proposed original settlement prior to the involvement of the Department of Justice was that the Authors Guild and the members of the American Association of Publishers were not good representatives of the class affected by Google's digitizing of the books. Does that make sense to everybody? Well, the, the objectors are not just authors. There's countries yeah. and states yes. who are filing uh, and, objectors. And again, I mean, when it really started to roll out in all of the, you know, France, was it France? Yeah, France just now has filed, I think, France, the last couple weeks. France, Germany, Germany Spain. Spain. Some of these other countries have said, wait a minute, you're, you're really affecting the copyrights of, of our members within the entire country here. Um, and I don't, because, my focus was not on that, I don't wanna address it, but I think that from a procedural standpoint from CIFWA's point of view, that one of the core problems, there were really two core problems with the proposed settlement. One was you've signed the deal unless you say you're not signing the deal. Yeah. In other words, unless you say no, you sign on. That's that, that's that, that's that if, if you're an orphan copyright holder and you don't know you hold the orphan copyright, how could you say no? <laughs> and secondly was that we felt like uh, the Authors Guild and the members of the ARP were not good representatives of the class. So those were our sort of fundamental, and I, I could go into more detail. They even but, made the burden of saying yes and no very high. Because well, in I'm, order, I'm sorry, Jack. They, they even made the burden of saying yes and no very high. This gets back to the administrative overhead. You, you were commenting about my comment about that on your blog a while back, which is that in order to defend your work in this situation, you have to cite by page number and every edition in which it has appeared. So if you have a short story in, in an anthology that got reprinted in another theme anthology in any year's best, you have three separate citations. I have 250 short stories in print, many of them in print three and four and five times. The going back and tracking down individual page numbers and, and locations in each case would literally have taken me weeks of time to figure that out. I don't have all those copies, quite frankly. And this is simply so that I could defend myself because it's an opt-out instead of an opt-in. If it's an opt-in, they come to me and say, hey, can we have your copyright? I send, them, I send them a copy of the manuscript or point them to an existing pub. In this case, they made it incredibly burdensome for me as a private individual. I don't have at least research staff. I don't have an assistant. I don't have an attorney. 
I, I, I literally couldn't comply and also maintain my ordinary activities. I had, I, I, the last time I looked, just in DAW anthologies, I'd published uh, somewhere between 30 and 40 short stories, but there were over 80 of them cited in the Google Books database yeah. in different editions and yeah. so on and so forth. I found a few I didn't even know existed, which was good, because, you know, I mean, whether Google owes me money or not, I'd kind of like to know about these other folks, but, but. So they're good for something. They're good, but, you know, you really don't. Now, the fact is, is that you really don't always know. I mean, and I can't imagine, in Jay's case, having 250. I mean, if, if the multiplier for me was two or three, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like with foreign editions and, and Year's Best. And no, nobody ever picks my stuff for Year's Best, but Jay gets those choices, and God bless him. And, uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I sense my CIFWA membership fading fast. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's important to understand that one story isn't just one digibyte in their database. It might be two or three or four times that you have to cite that particular. And that's a really important difference because in every other instance of writers dealing with copyrights, the copyright is on the story as I hold the text. When I have to, that is not exactly true in law because when I'm, if I were pursuing a violation, it would have to do with a particular reproduction. But if someone wants to license, I'm only ever dealing with a license of essentially what amounts to my master copy. This, this presumptive copyright license that Google has created now applies to every single copy out there, not just my master copy. And, and that doesn't, my house analogy doesn't work there, but I think you can see the problem. And, and it's, it's purely a problem of burden, which may not matter to the principle of the law, and it may not matter to the judge, but it sure matters to me. Well, that, that is another example of the administrative convenience factor that goes into fair use and so much other copyright litigation, so much other trademark litigation, because there are trademark issues that are implicated throughout this that nobody's even thinking about. For example, uh, trademark for Perry Rodan. I mean, what? nobody really cares as much about the, the exact reproduction of those texts, which is largely translated from German in the first place, but what protects Perry Rodan besides copyright? Trademark. It's nowhere considered in that settlement. That's just one example that, that would be obvious to I'll, this I'll give you I'll give you one for me. I wrote a book for iBooks, which is now bankrupt and in receivership under a pseudonym in which I shared copyright with three other parties. Who gets to claim that on the Google Book Settlement site? Whoever's first. Well. <laughs> Obviously, as CIFWA president, I'm first. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the fact is, there's no way to fundamentally do that. And there's no way to address it. And the fact that, receiver, that iBooks is in bankruptcy and receivership actually nullifies my ability to issue a claim. Yeah. I can't claim it, even though I wrote it and own a percentage of the can, can I throw out another worm's eye viewpoint here, speaking as an authorial worm? Um, I, and and it's, this ties to some things you've heard said on this table already. I was in New York a while back and talking to a friend of mine who works in the legal department of one of our major trade publishers. I won't tell you which one for reasonably obvious in just a second. And he told me that they had this umpteen person team working on their response to the Google Books settlement. And I said, well, yeah, okay. And he said, and this is kind of weird because our chief counsel actually was one of the authors of the Google Books settlement. And he knows, does not understand it. And I realized that in real life, complex legal settlements are like any other complex project. Lots of people work on different pieces of it and it gets stitched together. But the fact that the, one of the authors of the settlement <laughs> had to put together a multi-month project with a multi-person team to understand his own work did not give me the faintest hope that I could interpret it as a private individual. Let's, uh, let's two things I want to do here real quick. One is stop and take a pulse, check on the audience. Actually, you guys, are you still awake? Um, we can, we can yell. Is, is, is it starting to sink in a little bit? Um, probably not as many hands have, have no idea what we're talking about. Um, and the second is I stole the mic from Chris for a second ago, so I'm going to give it to him. 
Yeah, I think maybe even taking another step back and, and explaining a few things, because this did come about as a copyright infringement suit originally. And uh, the statute for copyright infringement, I believe, is uh, $750 minimum up to $150,000 for uh, knowing infringement. No. Okay, that, that is... Her work, yeah. Okay, now, what he's talking about is what are called statutory damages. That's what the law says. The law says you get to choose either actual damages or statutory damages. So if it was someone running off with a, with a complete previously unpublished work by Stephen King, he'd probably choose actual damages. <laughs> but it is a, ch a choice. The point is the minimum per work, per infringement, is $750. The ordinary cap on it is $30,000. But where it is knowing and willful, it is $150,000. Now that's a cap. There is no guarantee in there. And the amount of statutory damages in, in, that's in a particular case is set by the judge, not even by the jury. The jury does not award statutory. And my, and my, Mark, my understanding is that the original findings were that Google, should they have been found guilty, would have been knowing and willful. As There's knowing no and question. willful copyright infringement would have owed over one billion dollars yeah. to those who infringe it. For those of you thinking that the $60 per work settlement is a good deal, <laughs> Uh, but that's my understanding is it was yeah, over yeah. a billion. So, so that's where I'm getting, just, just to understand. So originally it was about copyright infringement, which it, let's say theoretically the minimum settlement per work would be $750. And, and it was said that the, the settlement did not address that, but actually it does address that because it yeah. says that any previous infringement or whatever vocabulary they use there, um, they will pay $60 to $300 uh, per work to the author based on that, and so it's, it's kind of, uh, well, anyway, that, that was the basic idea of the settlement, but at the same time, they lumped in, uh, you know, all this other thing, because, okay, so we'll pay for that. We admit, you know, something was there, and, and we copied these books without permission, so we'll pay that, and, and most people uh, seem to say that that will be $60, the payment, if this settlement goes through per work, because a lot of authors have gone in and, got, and opted into this. And, but then, you know, on the other side of that was basically a, a complete uh, blanket uh, amnesty for them to digitize any work before 2009 and put it into this database. So basically the Authors Guild was taking it upon themselves to hand over copyright of every work before 2009 over to this uh, uh, book, book registry based on the settlement. It's also created an agency relationship. Which again, I didn't get permission for that. <laughs> and so, uh, for, from, from it also created an agency relationship for the copyright holders, yeah. which I, as a copyright holder, did not get permission for. And so, uh, basically, one of the the major and it, what's funny is a lot of the uh, protests don't even or the opposition doesn't even come to this. But copyright, up till now, has always been de a definition is transfer of copyright is only by writing from the owner of the copyright. So, you know, the, the idea here is how can the Authors Guild transfer over all of this copyright without permission of the authors, without it being in writing? Um, but once someone opts into the settlement, uh, they're opted in. They're, whatever comes out of the settlement, whatever is decided, it's binding to the people who opt in. So I think that's important for everyone to understand, uh, you know, at least all that dynamic up and, till now. And because of the opt-in dynamic, if you, an opt-out dynamic, if you ignore it, it doesn't go away unless that's eventually struck down. Like if you're not here, raise your hand. <laughs> um, we're at the halfway point. I see hands out there. Let's um, let's move to you guys. Um, I'm not going to know names or fate. Blue sweater, yes. Uh, look down, you'll see you're wearing blue. Gray. It, it's, it is unusual, but it is, 
the bare description of what you just said is authorized by law. Had there been adequate notice, there are circumstances under which the court can say publishing the notice is good enough. Whether the Authors Guild and Google have done enough to publish the notice is another question entirely. But it is theoretically possible for this to happen without a specific notice arriving in the mail to you with, that you have to sign for and, and return. It's supposed to be the last resort. There, there's a very complex set of procedures. And in fact, there's a, uh, a uh, three-volume manual for federal judges that covers just the questions of how do you administer a class action as a judge, let alone what the merits of that class action are. Um, in my judgment, after having looked, I have unfortunately literally read every paper in the Google book search file. <laughs> it and explains your receding hairline, John. <laughs> and after that, it's, it's my opinion that none of the parties uh, consulted the manual for complex litigation. Uh, it, it's, uh, without naming names, I hold the counsel in question in minimal high regard. Mm -hmm. But that's a really fundamental, I mean. It's a, it's a fundamental problem with the procedure. You've pointed it out, and what you're saying from a theoretical standpoint, yeah, it can happen that way, but what you're also saying is, all, which is, but I didn't get adequate notice, is also correct. Part Does that of, answer your question? Part of the reason that the Department of Justice, I believe, from what I've read, is getting involved at this point is because uh, for them to come back and say, okay, we're going to give you two months to go back and revise this settlement when... Uh, Google's publicly stated they have no intention of wanting to revise this. They think it's fine. Um, but what they're doing is the implications they're getting into now are, are antitrust, is the reason the Department of Justice is getting involved. And, and one of the statements they came, there, there was a, uh, a conference recently in New York, uh, New York Law School held, but one of the statements they brought out was the Department of Justice said, <laughs> which I found rather amusing, nor is it responsible to think that a competitor could enter the market by copying books en masse without permission in the hope of prompting a class action suit that could then be settled on terms comparable to the proposed settlement. Even if there were reasons to think history could repeat itself in this unlikely fashion, it would be scarcely sound policy to encourage deliberate copyright violations and additional litigation as a means of obtaining approval for licensing provisions that could never otherwise be negotiated lawfully. So basically, by breaking the law, they've created a whole new business model. Well, you know, it, I it, wish it was new. It, it's interesting. We, we brought this up. We brought this up in our objection, and, and it's and I'm, I touched on it earlier. And it, 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 it's somewhat historically, SIFWA's uh, relationship with publishers has been complex. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe a little too complex. Thank you. Uh, but but a, in actuality, um, one of the things that I've advocated, at least since I've been involved, is that, in that SIFWA needs to have an attitude that good fences and good bridges make good neighbors. But fundamentally, if I take off my hat as SIFWA president and I put on my hat as a writer, the interest of a publisher are fundamentally different than mine. My interests as a writer are to make money by selling certain rights for as much money as I can possibly get for, for the least amount of time I can offer them and, and get my money. The publisher's interest is to buy as many of my rights as they can possibly convince me to give up for as least amount of money as they can possibly pay for as long as they can hang on to them. How did the Authors Guild and the American Association of Publishers get in bed together on this? I'd like to follow on to one point there. This will be real quick. Thank you, please. Um, has anybody noticed that there is a major publisher that is not at all represented? Has anybody seen any of the Bertelsmann group open their mouth at all? 
They're not one of the publishers that sued. They've been, they didn't opt in, they didn't opt out, they filed nothing. There's a very simple reason for that. A few years back there was a case called Rosetta Books regarding who owns the electronic rights to a book once it has gone out of print. This should sound a little bit familiar to what we're dealing with right now. The opposing party in that was Random House, which is now a unit of Bertelsmann. Uh, I don't want to waste more time connecting a lot of dots, but it makes a very interesting connect the dots picture of some of the other struggles that are going on behind this that also feed right back into the antitrust objections that the Department of Justice made. Wow. Um, I, let's, yes, actually, I remember. You, I, you know, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily does. And the reason I say that, and, and I'm not convinced that you're wrong and I'm not really convinced that you're right, is that with few exceptions, I don't think most traditional publishers within the framework as we know them, uh, Bertelsmann, Viacom, Sony, all of the little independents that have been absorbed by them, Delray, and, and, and so on and so forth, I don't think they really know what's going to work in terms of ebook licensing. And so it's a little bit like going to the farmer's market and not knowing what kind of pie you're going to make. They're going to pick up an apple and an orange and a handful of cherries and a pear and a peach, and they're going to hope that when they get home it turns into something edible because they don't know which of the fruits is ripe yet when they figure it out, uh, I can promise you that they'll be the first ones in line at the apple cart. Uh, but I don't think right now they know, and so it seemed better to them, and Charlie, you may have, or Jay, or any, or, or Chris, you may have a different perspective on this. My feeling is they felt like it was better to throw into this ocean than to not throw into the ocean at all. Who is they? Who is they in your... Publishers in general. That is not a bad interpretation of what my publisher told me. That and what my agent told they me. didn't know what was going to work. This might, so let's grab on while we can. Yeah, we're getting some well, money out of this, and we're getting a structure. They, we can they also can see that Google's golden. Um, you know, anything they touch grows, and 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 if well, it doesn't, and, and, it disappears and that, quickly. That, there's a problem here that you're just touching on, which is this settlement and this this issue that I get hung up on about this presumptive copyright, and which is frankly thievery from my point of view benefits about 99% of the people in the United States. It's only the few thousand or tens of thousands of us that actually hold material income producing copyrights who are adversely affected. The vast majority of the voting public, of the stockholding public, of the reading public has more access and freer access to more information. And so from most people's point of view, this is a good idea, which makes it hard to fight because nobody gets outraged about it. But, but that's a long-term abstraction to people who simply want access to a book. And it seems to me that in Europe, there has been a lot of moral outrage. Certainly after Frankfurt, there was a lot of press about how they're, they're just sort of indignant. In, the, in, the that in reality, and something that you just said, Jay, sort of sets us off, is it's very difficult when it comes to something as bland a topic as copyright. Which nobody understands anyway. Which nobody really, as nobody Even those really of us who should. <laughs> it's very difficult to draw a distinction between information and entertainment. And most of what those of us, you know, sitting up here do, most of what you do as writers is entertainment. But you know, when it comes to the electronic rights, people say, well, it's all information. Therefore, it should be free. <laughs> I knew somebody would do it. Yeah, and so it's very, I think it's, tip, I'm not saying it's impossible, certainly not impossible for us to draw that distinction, but in terms of the law, I think it's difficult to draw that distinction. And you know what's stupid here? What's really, really, really stupid to my mind? 
because to what you were objecting to it near the beginning of the panel, I actually think what Google is trying to do is probably is a good idea. I mean, just looking at it sort of abstractly. And if Google had said to me as an author, oh, we'd like to do this, I would have beat a path to their door to be included under almost any other regime. And instead, they've turned this into the, through the mechanism of the settlement, not the original project with the settlement, have turned this into the biggest food bar I've seen in my relatively limited lifetime as a published individual. There's an old saying that a lot of people are fond of, that it's easier to ask forgiveness than get permission. Uh, there, the problem with that statement is that it very well might be true when you're talking about using the car on Saturday night to go out and on a date. It's never been true with intellectual property. And by that, I mean going back to the Statute of Anne in 1709, that it has always been built into intellectual property which copyright is one, one species, that no, you don't get to ask forgiveness later, you must ask permission first. This settlement would ignore that 300 years of history. So it basically would say you can commit piracy if you get a big enough ship and fill it with enough lawyers. Well, and, and, and what I don't really, what I really don't think they understand do we have any football fans out here? Any people watch football on Sunday or Monday night? I'm a football fan. And before every game, it says, the following game is property of the NFL Network. No reproduction of this game. How pissed would they be if I rebroadcast the Packers game and said, no, I'm sorry, you have to opt out? I sent you a letter. I sent you a note. I don't know what you're talking about. I put it on my blog. The problem is, is that intellectual property, and, and, I, and I believe this to be basically true, is that regardless of whether we're talking about books or movies or music, it's all interconnected. The precedent that's being set here is not just dangerous to us as writers. The precedent that's being set that we can take something and then ask you to give your permission after we've already made money on it is a precedent that's being set for music, television, sports, film, every type of intellectual property that's available. The precedent is being set that you can ask for forgiveness after the fact if you have enough lawyers to hold the and line. And this from a company whose unofficial model is don't be evil. Yes, well. well for some value. Yeah, um, I also item. think it's interesting, if, if, it, if you take heart from this, Jay, that Google is going to sell books, but they're not really going to sell them. They're going to keep it in a cloud computing type of system where you never really download the book. It's going to only be read through a browser or something like yeah. that. And so, you know, maybe we're worrying about they're never going to really sell anything because I don't think anyone's going to buy it that way. Actually, let's, let's, uh, let's go into a speed round here because I know we've got a lot of questions. Um, so I'm actually going to be militant. You guys okay with that? You okay? You got six minutes to militant. Okay, starting in the front. Let's go. Yes, but nobody can figure out what it means. The, the question was, Google makes their money off selling ads, AdSense, AdSpace. Is, for all that that's already transpired, is there something in the settlement that goes back and makes compensation for that? And the answer was yes. They just recently let the cat out of the bag that uh, they want to sell services back to libraries with all these digital libraries. Well, again, they're going to have to pay extra if they don't want Google AdSense on there, which is there's more objections to. Moving on next. Moving back, hands. Yes, Red. Yeah, I would, bet which you exactly do. The, <laughs> yeah, the Department of Justice uh, agrees with you on that one. That was pretty much in their statement. Yes, back here. That's you.
it's not the money. It's the principle. I would have I would have done this for free probably. What I don't want is is someone proactively creating a copyright license. In other words, I don't want that that forgiveness rather than permission model. The actual digitization I don't object to. I mean, there might be nuts and bolts there. It's the the precedent they're setting that is profoundly destructive, not the actual act they're committing. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot more at stake than just setting up a registry here. Google gains a lot of power out of this settlement. They can data mine what's on there. They can data mine the habits of people that are going to the sites. They can sell that to other places. Uh, they, they get a massive, massive commercial gain out of this just because they're the initial partner, just because basically they're scanning books and they're paying to set up this registry. Uh, they gain significant commercial advantages over that. So uh, you, know, you need to take that into account and look at what's going on there. You know, this isn't the government setting up a database uh, you know, using taxpayer money or something like that. This is a commercial venture in many ways. I, I think it's worth noting that, that, you know, 10 years ago, CIFL was one of the first organizations to recognize that electronic book infringement or piracy, as it was commonly called at the time, was, was maybe a problem. And we were beginning to say to, to, to organizations like uh, Kaza and, and BearShare, hey, um, wait a minute, this doesn't seem quite right. And everybody at the time said, well, geez, you know, this is the future. Why aren't you on the train? The fact is, is that, that writers create uh, a form of art or entertainment or whatever you want to call it that certain rights adhere to and have since you know, going back to Great Britain before the colonies were founded. And if we do not step forward and say, wait a minute, before we change this, maybe we ought to think about the ramifications regardless of the technology attached to it, uh, I think we're doing a disservice to ourselves. Okay, back to the speed round, the hand, the gray shirt back here. goes back to the one billion and we each get a share? No, no. Wait, sorry. <laughs> that is one of the uh, slipperier sections of the settlement. <laughs> and it's up against some pretty stiff competition for that award. Um, the, the, what in theory is going to happen is that there's going to be an author's rights registry created. Um, you should think for a moment, gee, that sounds a little bit about like, like what songwriters have. And didn't the Department of Justice break that up about 15 years ago? Yeah, they did. There's, the, the bottom line is that the Authors Guild has magnanimously dis agreed to serve as the administrative backbone of this registry and they will remove a certain administrative fee and then when yeah. orphan authors are found they will get their part minus the administrative yeah, fee. Yeah, this administrative fee gets taken out of all the royalties that go to the authors. So yeah, no. that's the the there is a set royalty rate in the contract which uh, you know at first glance appears wow great this is a great rate but all these administrative fees get taken yeah. out before that royalty gets paid, so that gets taken out out of the author's percentage. It's and, not on and a historically, per, uh, when this when something similar was set up in Europe for photocopying, the administrative fees ran about 120 percent of the incoming royalty for the first decade. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Uh, with that, I have to apologize. We're out of time. The next group's coming in. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.